and good morning. It's a joy to see you today and to worship with you. I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 9. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, um, you're welcome to look on in the Bible that is just in front of you in the back of the pew. And you'll find, um, you'll find this passage, I think, on page 51 of your pew Bible. We're going to be looking today at Exodus chapter 9, beginning at verse 13. Today we're going to deal with another three plagues. And that's going to require us to bite off a large portion of Scripture. And we're not going to have time to rehearse all of the details of plagues number seven, eight, and nine. So I'm going to ask you to pay special attention as I read these details from God's holy word. I'm going to be reading beginning at Exodus chapter nine, verse 13, uh, down to the end of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and all, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant in the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and, Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. 
But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for this is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, and that the hail has left, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. 
So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us sacrifice and burnt offering, have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if there's a theme to this last set of three plagues, I suppose it would be darkness. The ninth plague is a plague of darkness. It's a darkness that was so thick that it was almost palpable. The eighth plague involves swarms of locusts that covered the the whole face of the land so that the land was, um, the text says, darkened. And plague number seven is a massive hailstorm. And not just hail, not just hail, but there was so much more that accompanied that hail. There was thunder and rain and lightning. There was, the text says that there's continual flashes of fire, which gives you the, the strong impression that these occurred against the, the backdrop of darkness. So all of these three plagues involve darkness, whether that darkness is in the heavens or on the land. And I, I bring all that up just to, because I think darkness is a very helpful metaphor for what is going on with Pharaoh and with his people. They are in the domain of darkness, spiritually speaking. And not only is Pharaoh and in, in the Egyptians in the thrall of you know, a whole pantheon of gods, but Pharaoh is actively resisting the one true and living God. He hates the light. And his heart, so to speak, has been plagued with darkness. The most common phrase that's used to describe Pharaoh's darkness of heart is that he is hard-hearted. Hard-hearted. We've read that that phrase, that expression, in in a variety of forms for the last few chapters. It's occurred multiple, multiple times. In fact... Each of these plague stories either ends or begins or both with um, just a note about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Whether it's noted that way just in terms of a simple descriptive, kind of a neutral passive description of his hard heart. Or if that is mentioned more actively by, by speaking of the agent who is doing the hardening. So we might read, for example, Pharaoh hardened his heart, but, but we also might read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, there are two things to notice about that right off the bat. And, and the first is that 
the the plagues and you know all of these stories they're all kind of prefaced and concluded with this note and that leads us to conclude that this must be a major point of these stories that one of the reasons that that um, the narrator tells us all of these things is because he really wants us to understand something about the hardness of heart and then the second thing to to say about this I'm sure you've already noticed this that the idea that there's two agents involved in the hardening of a, of a heart, that there's a human agent and a divine agent, well, that's a very confusing thing, isn't it? It's not immediately apparent to us how to even make sense of that. And we try our best to, to figure that sort of thing out. And, and it's good that we try try we must because if you've been tracking with us the last couple of months you'll you'll recall maybe that my strategy so far um, as it pertains to this mystery has been to kick the can down the road and uh, you know ever since we first encountered the Lord saying to Moses I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will not listen to you that was all the way back in chapter 4 verse 21 I've been, I've been asking you to kind of sit under the tension in the text. To, I, I've been asking you to, to just feel the weight of it for a while, to sense the wonder in it, perhaps, to wrestle with the mystery of it. I think that's the best way to approach. So, so my kick the can down the road strategy was not one of avoidance. Rather, it was one of preparation. I think we'll be in a better spot to understand this mystery if we have, have wrestled with it for a time. And uh, I think we're in a better place now to receive and to believe whatever it is that scripture is teaching us about the hardening of the heart. So now is that time, okay? The, hard hardening, the heart hardening has reached a sort of crescendo in these last three plagues. Well, these la this last set of three before the, the final big one. So I think it's the perfect time for us to take a closer look. And we'll look at this text under two main headings. And both of these kind of cover the active agents that are involved in the hardening of the heart. So here's how we're going to deal with this. We're going to look first at some aspects of human heart hardening. And then we'll look at some aims some purposes of divine heart hardening. Now, let me just say that I'm, I'm almost positive at this point that we won't get to the second part today, that we'll have to deal with that next week. I, per, perhaps if Matt wasn't so confused and if he didn't need the youth group to explain a simple announcement to him, we could have had more time to deal with this text. <laughs> but uh, no, I don't, I don't want to rush this thing. Obviously, uh, we want to deal with this topic delicately. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, with to, your, with your forbearance, going to deal with that second point, it looks like, next week. So you'll have to come back. And I also want you to understand that this is not meant to be an academic sort of exploration into a theological mystery. 
No, my purpose is much more practical. And the Bible's purpose is much more practical. Under this first heading, we want to see what it looks like for a human being to harden their heart so as to avoid doing that. We don't want to go down this road at all once we see where that road leads. We want to see the signs of what it's looking like when a person is hardening their heart so that we can obey the admonition of the psalmist and of the author to the Hebrews who admonish us saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart against him. We, we want to we know what it looks like to harden our heart, and then we don't want to do that. So, and likewise, if we want to understand the divine purposes at play, we want to we understand those so that we can actually enter into those, and we can rejoice when we see God's purposes fulfilled. We, we want to be able to give God the glory that is due his name, the, the glory that he intends to bring to himself through his mighty acts. All right, so you ready? Let's, let's get into this. Let's look at some aspects of human heart hardening. And here we're looking at some of the features of the kind of sin and darkness that would lead to the hardening of one's heart. It's always easy to see sin and stubbornness in other people, isn't it? And we can see very clearly, even in just the reading of scripture here, we can see the, the sin and the stubbornness of Pharaoh. It's easy for us to see. So let's take that to, let's use that to our advantage. And we'll, we'll see from Pharaoh, uh, we'll notice from Pharaoh a number of these aspects of human heart hardening in order to avoid it by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. We want to be able to, um, by looking at Pharaoh, also then look back at ourselves and examine our own hearts to see if any of these aspects are appearing in our lives. Now, the first aspect is this, self-exaltation, self-exaltation. The root of sin, you understand, is pride. It's that pernicious tendency that we all have to have an overinflated opinion of oneself. Um, it's this tendency that we have to position ourselves at the top of every hierarchy. You know, in our, in our darkness and in our blindness, we, we imagine that we can exalt ourselves high enough to even displace God. We often don't have the courage to say that that's what we're doing but that's how we gear our lives that is our aim we want to dethrone god we want we want to be on the throne in our lives and in the world this is precisely how the devil tempted our great great grandparents adam and eve he promised them that by disobeying and taking and eating of the fruit that god had told them not to he he not just suggested to them, but he told them that they could achieve the status of being like God. And that is something that human fi beings find so appealing. It's irresistible even. And this is certainly the picture that we get of Pharaoh. You know, he believed himself to be a God. And he had a kingdom full of people who, who also 
uh, believed him to be a god and declared him to be god. Pharaoh is not prepared to tolerate a rival god who comes into his territory, who comes into his presence in the form of Moses and Aaron, and makes demands of him. A god uh, who speaks of uh, a large portion of people under Pharaoh's control as his people, that god's people. Uh, a God who comes in and makes demands that those people who are my people must be freed in order that they may serve me, not you. Well, all of those you understand are fighting words if, if you understand yourself to be a God. And this message comes once again to the king of Egypt in the first two plagues of this triad. So we're looking today again at plagues 7, 8, and nine, and in the first two of those, seven and eight, um, Moses and Aaron come into the presence of Pharaoh and repeat this unchanging demand from the Lord God. A devastating and unprecedented, unrepeatable kind of hailstorm is going to be is threatened because, and look at, at chapter nine, verse seventeen. Here's why that hailstorm might come. It's because Pharaoh is still exalting himself. He's still exalting himself. This, this plague of locusts is threatened for the same reason, though it's expressed in chapter 10, verse 3, kind of in the reverse way. You can look there and see that the Lord says to Pharaoh, through Moses, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Do you see how the Lord has identified the main problem with Pharaoh's sin and disobedience? It's the same problem that, that we have. Our MO, Pharaoh's MO, is self-exaltation. We refuse to humble ourselves before the Lord God. We want to be the sovereign. We don't want to be the servant. We want to be the ones in control, calling the shots. We, we want to go our own way, do our own thing. We will not have anyone to reign over us. From birth, every single one of us is involved in a sort of cosmic boxing match with God. He, he is the undefeated, intercontinental heavyweight champion and we're like puny, pathetic little Max who are under the delusion that we will be the first person ever to deliver the TKO on God and claim his belt and wear it proudly around our, our waist. That's, that's the delusion that we all suffer from. In Pharaoh's case, this match has, is now in the seventh and eighth and ninth round, and so far, he's refused to tap out. And it's all down to his self-exaltation, his pride. And so God says, stop exalting yourself. Humble yourself. That's God's gracious invitation to the king, and that's God's gracious invitation to you today. To any of his competitors, this is what he would say, Stop exalting yourself. 
Humble yourselves before me. And if you don't, the hits are going to keep raining down on you like hail. Remember that the word for plague is a strike or a blow. And so I think the, the boxing analogy fits quite nicely. These latest blows seem to have landed pretty solidly on, on Pharaoh. And they appear, at least at first glance, to have the king ready to tap out. He's, he's looking like he's about to. The hail, for example, caused widespread devastation on both man and beast in the, in the fields that, that remained. Um, devastation of every plant and every tree. And that, you understand that that would have left the country with very little in the way of resources. Any, any crops that, that had not yet sprouted would be finished off by the next plague when the locusts swept through like buzzsaws, you know, leaving nothing, no green thing in their wake. And as, as I said, the effect of these plagues were really felt by Pharaoh. And on both occasions, he summoned Moses and Aaron. In the second case, it says he summoned them hastily, like, get in here. And this leads us to a second aspect of human heart-heartedness. I, I shouldn't have uh, set it up that way. I'm going to trip over that the whole time. Human hard-heartedness, and that is shallow confession. Shallow confession. In the midst of the hail, Pharaoh admits, look at verse uh, 27 of chapter 9, Pharaoh admits this, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. And we're thinking, whoa. Okay, so this is it. We're, we've, we've, we're finally getting somewhere with this guy. This, this, is, this is wonderful. In the same way, Swarmed by locusts, Pharaoh hastily calls Moses and Aaron and says, and this is in verse 16 of chapter 10, he says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. Now, as far as confessions go, those sound pretty good. Those, those, are, those are a really good start we might say you know the word confess means um, literally to say with to say with God which is basically to agree with God about your sin to name it for what it is it's to agree with God about who you are before him and about who he is in contrast and, and name the contrast between you a sinful person and a holy God it's to say something like, the Lord is in the right, and I am in the wrong. Confession also involves a calling out to the Lord for mercy, a pleading him for forgiveness. Now, all of these, in some form, are found in Pharaoh. But it becomes quite clear, and I think very quickly, that his confession is just shallow. There's no substance to it. It's just words. 
It's just, it's more manipulation. It's more ploy. In fact, it looks an awful lot like something the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 as worldly sorrow, worldly grief. The kind of sorrow that really just revolves around the, the personal consequences of sin and how hard and how unsettling those consequences are rather than revolving around the, the real cause of sin and all of its divine implications. You see that worldly sorrow kind of pursues relief from, from any kind of painful situation that your sin might have got you into. And godly sorrow produces, or it, it pursues repentance, which is a change of mind and a change of heart related to that sin. It's, it's a, it involves a turning away from that sin. It results in zeal and fear and longing for restoration with God. Not restoration to life as it was. That's the difference. And Pharaoh is certainly feeling the pain of the plagues. And he wants to be rid of it so that life can go on as normal. And life as normal to Pharaoh is just continuing to enslave the people of Israel. Confession, in his view, is, is merely just a means to that end of getting on with life, getting, getting back to normal. And the proof of that is that it produces no repentance in him whatsoever. It doesn't result in a fear and a zeal and a readiness to obey. In fact, Pharaoh is still seeking to control the situation, even as he is confessing his sin. He's, he's wanting to control. He's still attempting to bargain with God about God's commands. Notice in the text just a number of modifications that he proposes to God's commands. First, it was, go sacrifice to your God, but stay in the land of Egypt. That was back in chapter 8, verse 25. Then it was, fine, go sacrifice to your God outside of Egypt, but don't go far, like just on the outside border of Egypt. That's chapter 8, 28. Next it was, go, but only with the men. Leave the women and leave the little ones behind. That's in chapter 10, verse 11. And then it was, fine, all the people can go, but leave your livestock. Verse 24. Look, folks, true, humble, deep confession of sin leads a person to the point of total submission to the word of God and to the will of God. It results in a readiness to obey, to obey his commands on his terms, not on yours. I wonder if you've ever done this, you know, wanted to give lip service to the fact that you've sinned and confession of your sin, but you're still, you're still bargaining. You're still wanting to modify what it is that God has demanded of you. That's not true confession. That's not true repentance. Shallow confessions don't fool anyone. Well, sometimes they do, but they certainly don't fool God. Often they don't fool other people. For example, Moses, he's under no illusion that Pharaoh was truly repentant. He says this right to the king's face in chapter 9, verse 30. Look there with me. He says, 
But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. It's obvious. You're not fooling, you're not fooling me, Pharaoh. Nevertheless, and here's what's very interesting to me. Even though he knows this, he knows it's just fake, it's, it's a ploy. In both cases, Moses does intercede on Pharaoh's behalf. And he does plead to the Lord to remove the plagues. And God, in his great kindness and mercy, removes both of these plagues. At the appointed time, the hail instantly stops. At the appointed time, in the case of the locusts, you know, the Lord sends a west wind to pick them all up and drive them out and deposit them in the Red Sea. Not a locust was left. And that's an incredible testimony. Not of not of the depths of Pharaoh's guilt and sorrow for sin and repentance and confession. No, that's an incredible testimony of the patience and the forbearance and the kindness and mercy of God. Now, the ultimate demonstration of the shallowness of Pharaoh's confession was that as soon as he got what he wanted, as soon as he experienced the relief from the pain of the plagues, he once again hardened his heart and did not let the people go. Does that describe you at all? You've got these crisis moments in your life where things are really bad and you're feeling it. And it, it causes you to turn in some way to the Lord. Are you turning to the Lord in true confession and repentance? Or are you trying to manipulate the Lord into relieving your pain with the full intention that you're just going to get on with your life after it happens? It's dangerous. It leads to the hardening of heart. A third aspect of human heart hardening is our willingness to ride our sin all the way to self-destruction. Picture this. Egypt lies in complete ruins by now. I think the, the text shows this in a number of different ways. You could notice, for example, the generous use of the word all. If you want to do that sometime, just kind of go back through and circle in your Bible every time it says all. You'll find it happens a lot. And uh, it's, it's to communicate the extent of the damage. This is widespread and it's devastating. Now all doesn't always mean every last one. And when the narrator wants us to understand that the destruction is total and absolute, he says exactly that. You know, he, he uses words that really communicate. For example, when he writes, not a single locust was left in Egypt. That's a way for the narrator to communicate that no more locusts, not even one. Now, Andrew Smith asked a great question last week in anticipation of this week, the hail. He asked, where did the livestock come from that got hailed on? Since, since after plague five, the plague of the livestock, we read that all the livestock of the Egyptians died. And that's a great question. I'm glad he answered it. And I, I, I figure that it's probably more than Andrew that's wondering that. So let me just say a word about that. There's a couple of different ways to approach that, that issue. 
And one approach is to be very literal. And notice that the text says in plague five that that plague came only upon livestock that were in the field. And so some people say, you know, there's a bunch of other livestock that were in pens or in barns that weren't affected, similar to the plague of hail. It only, they say it only affected livestock in the field. Um, livestock in the barns are presumably safe. Another approach is to understand that the word all is non-literal, that it's not meant to be mean every last one. Rather, it's, it's hyperbole that um, is very common in the Hebrew language and in ours. It doesn't mean every last animal. Again, um, the narrator knows how to get that point across if he means every last animal. But otherwise, he, he may just be saying all to, to, to help us understand the, the, the scope of this plague. It was widespread. It's a, it's a rhetorical device then is what I'm saying, all, to indicate an effect that is massive and widespread, that stops short maybe of meaning every single livestock. That's kind of how I take it. And that idea contributes to something that I think I observe in this particular stretch of signs. I could be wrong, but it seems to me like the devastation caused by these plagues is uh, what, what, what you might call painted on. You know, you know when you're painting a wall? That's uh, actually a, a chore that I avoid as much as I possibly can. I'm thankful to have a wife who enjoys it and who's good at it. But you know, you're supposed to roll paint on the wall, you know, in a W pattern so that you can kind of overlap the, the, um, the thin paint with fresh paint and you get a nice even coat. Again, I don't know, I've got no clue. They just tell me that's how you do it. Or just imagine, here's how I would paint. I dip a, a paintbrush in the bucket put it on the wall and just walk in a straight line. Okay, have that picture in your head. And then at some point on that line, you'll see that the paint kind of gets really thin. At the end of that line, it's, there's hardly any paint at all. It's gonna be very thinly and sparsely applied. So then you get more paint on your brush and what do you do? You don't start at the very end of that line. You kind of go back to where it was last thick and you start there and you paint over the thin stuff, okay? So you're applying the paint in an overlapping way. And I think that's similar to what the Lord's doing here in this stretch of plagues. The, the plague with the livestock, it went on thick and there was widespread dam carnage, but it wasn't total. It left things kind of thin on the edges. And then the Lord goes back to the bucket and he comes back with hail, and, and the hail wipes out more of the livestock that had survived. And then the hail also wipes out the flax and the barley, but then we have the editorial note in verses 31 and 32 that the wheat and the emmer were not yet up out of the ground. And so they're saved, presumably, from the hail, so the Lord goes back to the bucket and he applies a coat of locusts which take out the wheat and the emmer which came up afterwards. 
Do you see what I'm saying? It's like a, a W pattern. The Lord is progressively just wiping out everything. The, the devastation is widespread here in Egypt. It's ruined. And that's my point. Sorry for the excursus. My, my point is, is one astounding aspect of hard-heartedness is our willingness to ride our sin all the way to self-destruction. We see this especially in, in chapter 10, verse 7. It says, Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall Moses be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? I, I love that line. They're trying to knock some sense into this stubborn mule. And they're like, look, open up your eyes. Our whole country is decimated. Don't you understand? And no, the answer is no. The hard-hearted king does not understand that. The hard-hearted person suffers that delusion, the same kind of delusion that a man who's been sitting at a blackjack table in Vegas for the last three days is under. You know, he's completely bankrupt by this point, but he, he still imagines that, that he can gamble his way out of his hole and come away a millionaire. You want to shake the guy and say, don't you understand that you're ruined, buddy? And the hardening heart would rather have its sin than have any kind of soundness or security. And, and that's, why, that's why we do absolutely bonkers things in our sin, like drink ourselves into cirrhosis of the liver or drug ourselves into skeletons or fornicate ourselves into disease and depression. We uh, porn ourselves into impotence. We trans ourselves into bodily mutilation. We eat ourselves into oblivion. We divide ourselves um, relationally into isolation and loneliness. You know, only, only biker dudes and biker chicks have the courage to wear the t-shirts, but all of us are determined to ride our rebellion all the way to hell. Tom Petty has given us hard-hearted sinners really our anthem. We sing, you can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. I'll stand my ground. I won't be turned around. Repentance, that's the last thing that I'll do. I'll repent over my dead body. And this is precisely Satan's plan for us. He, he wants to destroy. He's a thief who comes to do just that, to kill and steal and destroy. And in our sin, he promises us life. But his, also, his ultimate purpose, you understand, is for our self-immolation. He, he wants us to set ourselves afire with the, with the blaze of hell. And, and that's the devil. That's the devil. But consider here with me for a minute Jesus' purpose. Jesus contrasts himself with the devil who comes to, the thief who comes to kill and destroy. And Jesus says, I've come. My purpose is that you'd have life and life abundantly. 
The, the Lord is our rock. In him we hide. He's a shelter in the time of storm. And I want to just ask you here, do you see the, the shelter in this passage? Moses, speaking for the Lord, warns of a hailstorm, a hailstorm that's coming upon the land such as they've never seen before in their whole history. But then he speaks of a gracious provision. Look there with me in chapter 9, verse 19. He says, Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that's in the field that's not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. The call, the call here is to be wise and to seek shelter before it's too late. And I just think that this is so gracious of the Lord to extend this offer to Pharaoh, to his servants, to anyone that would take it. So gracious to offer salvation to whomever will respond in faith. You you need to understand that the storm and the darkness of God's wrath is surely going to come. It's going to fall. But he invites all who would fear him to come under shelter. And that shelter is salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. These plagues, these these pictures are really just but a hint of the judgment and mercy that's found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about the plague of darkness for just a minute here. It's a darkness that was so thick as to be felt Darkness where there should have been light. Darkness that lasted three days. And I think it it beckons us to look forward for them, to look back for us of that time when darkness fell in the middle of the day. And it lasted for three hours. And in that three hours of darkness, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was under the hailstorm of the wrath and the judgment of of God. And he died. Not for his sin. He had no sin. He was sinless. But for mine. For for all of my self-exaltation. For all of my hard-hearted rebellion. For all of my shallow confession and my love for sin. The Lord Jesus gave his life for mine so that I could find shelter and be safe in him. I love these lyrics from a, a recent song by Sky Peterson. She, she sings, When a greater war had torn apart my soul, and the iron hold of sin would not let go, all of heaven stormed the darkness in the power of the cross. I'm freed beneath the banner of his love. And I'll take shelter, take shelter in the loving arms of God. What a gospel, what what an invitation. And friends, that invitation stands today. This appeal comes to you, people who might be saying something like, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? If you're saying that today, listen to what the Lord says to you through the mouth of the prophet Ezekiel, he says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wickedness, wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and, and live. Turn back, 
Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? Why will you die? Turn. There's no need to die. That's a great question. Ask yourself that question today if you're outside of Christ. Why would you die? Why will you, you really want your sin more than salvation and life? Why the deliberate self-destruction? Today, friends, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn. Turn to the Lord in repentance. In repentance of your sins and in faith in the crucified and risen Savior. Turn and live. Take shelter in the the loving arms of God. Well, we we read the mixed response in chapter 9, verses 19 to 20. It says, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And, well, you know the rest of the story. But this leads us just to a final aspect of human sin and heart hardening. And that is self-determination. It's a willful decision to take up a position against God and to maintain that position against God. And you can see how this plays out in real time. There's some who fear the word of the Lord and take shelter. And there's others who defy his word. And they do so to their own detriment and to ultimately to their own destruction. And my point here is simply to say, that's a determination that you're free to make. That, you know, no, one, no one's holding a gun to your head. You understand this will be important when we talk, Lord willing, next week about the divine agency. But you understand that Pharaoh is not living his life here as kind of a robot pre-programmed. He's making his own choices, his own decisions. He's, he's willful. This is, a, this is a choice that you are free to make. In fact, that you must make. Will you find shelter in Christ? Now, I've, I've said something about the option of taking shelter. Let me say something in closing about the other option. The one where you don't pay attention to the word of God. And notice this, there's no third option. There's no, there's no neutral ground when it comes to the things of the Lord. Don't fool yourself to, to, into thinking, well, you know, I'm cool with God because I, I don't have a problem with God. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of like neutral about him. No, that's not how it works. Every day and every time the word of God comes to you, like in this format, and, and the command comes to you to repent of your sins and believe, Every, even when you take no action, you're taking action. You're taking action. You are persisting in your rejection of Christ. And I want to point out just the terrifying danger of taking that tack, of, of rejecting Christ. You reach a point of no return. You, you get to a point where the Lord essentially says, fine, have it your way. And that is about the scariest thing that could ever happen to you. 
Do you see this in the text? There is in these chapters uh, a sort of dance between Moses and Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh keeps pulling Moses in and then pushes him away. You know, he summons Moses and Aaron into his presence and then he asks them to, to plead for him. And then he drives them out from his presence. And this re reaches a decisive point at the end of the plague of darkness. So this is chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, right at the end of the portion that we read. And remember when I read that, that Moses is as God to Pharaoh. We, this, we got to recall that, that Moses, the presence of Moses in front of Pharaoh's face is the presence of God and the presence of the word of God. He represents that to the Pharaoh. But Pharaoh says, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses says, and the Lord says, as you say, I will not see your face again. And those are, there's irony in those words, but those are ominous words. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to a person is that they harden their hearts to the point that the Lord confirms in them their rejection of him. We'll talk about more about that next week, Lord willing. But for now, friends, understand the dangerous position it is to set yourself and to remain set against the living God. I'm saying to you once again, if you hear his voice, if you're feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit today, the worst thing that you could do is run out of this place and carry on life as normal. Come, come to the end of yourself. Repent of your sins. And I don't mean just admit that they're sins, but plead to the Lord for mercy and for forgiveness. Turn from those sins and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Take shelter in the Savior today.